Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever. If you're going to take over the biggest club in the world and you want to make a statement with your first signing, you might as well go for one of the biggest name players in the world. It looks like that's what Jose Mourinho has done with the reports that it's Zlatan Ibrahimovic is going to join Manchester United. You're very welcome to Monday's Irish Times Second Captain's Podcast. Owen Murphy and Ken here. Hi, uh, Murphy and Ken. Hello Hi there. How are you? I was about to say hello to myself there. Uh, which would have been uh, <laughs> definitely a, a sign of madness. Yeah, Zlatan, Ken. Yeah. Uh, almost, well, we, they seem like pretty solid reports that he'd be signing for a year with a possible coaching role. Talk about the... <laughs> Talking about making an impact, uh, Zlatan Ibrahimovic, who uh, previously has been a, um, you know, he's on the record as being very complimentary about Jose He's like a movie star. Uh, according to The Telegraph, the Dutch newspaper, is going to uh, join them on a free, well, a free plus wages. Um, really expensive free transfer. Pretty expensive. Um, I think Zlatan you know, is on 20 million euros a year at the moment, so I'd be surprised if it was much less than... Although, I don't know. I mean, who knows if he still gets the same at, at uh, nearly 35. But, yeah, that seems to be... Um, Why would it be in a Dutch newspaper? Why would they have the scoop on this one? Again? Because uh, of Mina Raiola, Zlatan's agent who... And there's not a chance that he's just... You know, just saying this the exact moment where there's complete chaos in the Manchester United hierarchy and, hey, let's just throw it out here and let's see what happens. Well, I suppose there is. We'll, we'll have to wait and see if it's true, but it, it is a... Um, it, I think it would be a really good signing, actually. You yeah. Know, you know? Well, yeah. I, I'm, to be honest, I mean, I, I, I think maybe four or five years ago there was a doubt in the English game about Zlatan. I don't think many people have those doubts anymore. I mean, if you do, then... I think you're an idiot. Yeah, the guy's the, I mean, an absolutely the, brilliant player. Yeah, the argument is that he's an old player, but he 34. did. Yeah, did sign off his uh, ridiculously successful stint in Paris with another couple of goals in the yeah. cup final, didn't he? So it's not as though his level is, uh, has has dropped particularly, and you know you're not paying a transfer fee. So I don't. Oh, the, the other the other thing around Zlatan was that okay, he's not exactly 
hasn't always been the easiest man in the world. Um, I, w- I think it's fair to say. But you don't actually hear of, despite the massive ego, you don't actually hear of him, certainly in recent years, being disliked particularly uh, by teammates or anything like that. He seems to be very popular amongst his Swedish teammates for the most part. Yeah, the Swedish. And in Swedes Paris, he seemed them. to be liked. And I think you everybody know. loves him in Paris. Everybody loves him at Milan. Uh, and this is a guy who would go around kicking people in the head just because he could he could reach up that high quite easily. Well, yeah, not foot. fully, uh, like not full contact kicks. No. Joke, play, I mean, play kicks. Okay, he wasn't universally popular at Barcelona, I think it's fair to say, but that, that no. just wasn't a great fit. No, but you know, you, you're saying his level hasn't hasn't really dropped. I mean, he, how many goals has he scored this season just gone? I haven't got the figure in front of me. Have you guess. Got? I want you to give me a guess. Um, probably scored about 36 goals. 50 goals. <laughs> wow. uh, 38 in 31 league matches <clears throat> and 5 in 10 in the Champions League, which is pretty good. Mm-hmm. You know, Manchester United have a have a younger man, uh, Wayne Rooney, who's the captain of the club and regarded, I suppose, as the main striker. How many goals did he score? Twelve. Um, I, I believe it's fifteen. Hmm. Um, that's Eight a, league goals. Well, you, you can you can boost that that tally if you include his three in a, in a Champions League uh, qualifying game. Mm. Well, yeah, I think you have to. I mean, that is a game of fairly legitimate game. So of just football. so just a thirty fewer league goals than. Uh, Zlatan in three fewer games um, now obviously the Premier League is, is a higher level of competition than the French League I don't think anyone's going to argue with that the games are tougher um, but I don't again I don't think that every player declines at the same rate you know there are some players who just last a little bit longer or age a little bit more slowly maybe it has something to do with the condition that they keep themselves in I think that Zlatan keeps himself in pretty good condition I think he's you know He's more ambitious and focused about football than maybe people thought he was at the beginning because he sort of looks, you know, he he, he was famous originally for his his um, ridiculous skills, being the only player of his size ever who could do these kinds of things with the ball. The goal against um, Nac Breda back in the day, you know, with Raphael van der Vaart, somebody who did really hate Zlatan watching on from the stands with his baleful eyes. Yeah, and I'm sure there's loads of people who are going to tweet in now saying, what are you talking about there? There's literally been 20 to 30 documented cases of teammates hating Zlatan. Uh, mm. But I, I, I think he seems to bring a winning mentality where he goes, as opposed to being overly disruptive. It's this is something which he's done. Like, I mean, the fact is, everywhere he goes, he wins the league. Mm. Every single place. You know, it's not as though it's always been due to him. You know, Barcelona... I think probably would have won that league uh, that year anyway. And I think, I dare say, PSG would have as well. But He has picked well. Much like Floyd Mayweather picks his opponents at the right time. Yeah. He's sometimes picked his teams at the right time in Italy. But it's, a, it's, an, amazing, it's an amazing collection of, of league titles. I mean, he, he has, I believe it's correct to say he won the league with every club that he played for. Although, no, Malmo, I'm not Juventus, uh, yeah, actually Malmo, you're correct. He did not win the league with Malmo. And the two leagues he won with Juventus were stripped from Juventus. Though Juventus fans will tell you, they shouldn't have been stripped. And in fact, they still count those two league titles. <clears throat> but uh, they were officially revoked. He did win them, but then they were revoked. Um, but everywhere he's gone, so he knows how to win a league. Uh, he's, be- he's become not a senior player in, in world football now. I mean, everybody kind of looks up to Zatan. You know, like, remember Grant Wall told us how insulted he was that uh, he refused to talk to Sports Illustrated unless they put him on the cover. Oh, yeah. Um, he just wouldn't speak to them. Uh, <laughs> Although I suppose Sports Illustrated put uh, Mario Balotelli on the cover, 
So that sounds kind of like if you, if that guy is on the cover, then I literally can't talk to you unless I am as well. It would, I would be demeaning myself. I would, to be honest, I would I wouldn't be able to look at myself in the mirror. Yeah, if f- I talk to you, a former a former teammate uh, of his at Inter, but. So why would Manchester United sign him? It's, I mean, they signed Henrik Larsson, if you remember. He was even a little bit older than Zlatan is now. Uh, he was, I would say it's a similar type of thing. You know, you're talking about a guy who is still able to uh, give performances of a high level, although maybe not every week. Um, you're, still, you're talking about a guy who knows what it is to win the biggest prizes, who's actually been there, who's played, uh, you know, at every level of the game. And... Although Henrik Larsson won the Champions League, which Zlatan hasn't managed to do, and will find it difficult at Manchester United because they're in the competition. Um, but you know, I think he's there as a kind of an example to the other players. Uh, also, somebody who has worked with Mourinho before kind of knows how he likes to do things. We were talking about it just last week. You know, he's talking about Mourinho's button pushing, manipulative style of management. Um, Zlatan's kind of used to that. Somebody who other play- junior players will look up to, try to emulate. And uh, you can see him bringing a lot to... I mean, I think it's... I can't see anything wrong with the signing at all. Uh, I'm not entirely sure that the home dressing room is going to be the the sole preserve of Wayne Rooney. <laughs> I don't know that he's going to bestride that dressing room like a king uh, next year with Jose Mourinho and Zlatan Ibrahimovic around. No. I think uh, whatever about Rooney's uh, place in the team coming under threat, or at least... Uh, whatever his place in the team, certainly I think his place in the hierarchy of the club might be a little threatened by both of the, those arrivals. So Louis van Gaal endures the 48 most miserable hours of his career directly after winning a major trophy for one of the biggest clubs in the world. Well, I wonder I wonder is Edward Woodward, though, enduring the most miserable eight hours of his career at the moment as he deliberates with Louis van Gaal over exactly uh, what's going to happen now. Well, no such conflicted emotions for Rory McIlroy after his big day at the K-Club. A victory set up by an insane approach shot to the par 5 16th and secured with this equally ridiculous approach shot to the par 5 18th as described in Sky Sports. There's going to be a cheer at the end of this one. What a shot. What an incredible shot. Absolutely flushed right down the pin. Thank you very much. Yeah, pretty jubilant celebration as well, Murph. And intense also. He was, a minute afterwards, he was fighting back the tears. If you, if you look at it logically, if you'd said three or four years ago, Rory McIlroy winning an Irish Open in 2016 would be he would put up there as one of the best the best wins outside of his majors mm. you know he said he'd have it, have it up around the players and uh, you know in and around the WGCs yeah, yeah sorry WGC like that, that would be incredible but such, such as the circumstances was he's taken over this tournament he's always played badly in it yeah. and uh, now it just it, it has turned into something that ended up meaning a hell of a lot to him yeah I mean I think that uh, you know you can say that your home open is always going to mean a lot to any golfer and certainly that's what people have been saying in the in the aftermath of Rory winning but I mean, it's it's actually so much more than that because uh, McIlroy had the chance to basically let this competition die if he wasn't that bothered about it. Mm. Because if you remember, four or five years ago, you couldn't get a sponsor for this tournament. Uh, it was dying a death. There was none of the big players were coming, and Rory just stepped in and, and just saved the tournament. Like came in and just saved the tournament. And uh, what made that what what was kind of weird about that was how badly he played after he'd made that decision. I mean, he's missed the last three cuts at the last three Irish Opens. Um, but, I mean, to to see the level of involvement that he has in it now, um, 
he has an ambition to make this tournament one of the biggest tournaments in the world and to make it one of the major flagship events on the European Tour along with the, the BMW which is coming up uh, later this week to, along with that tournament to make it the biggest tournament that you can that that's held in the European mainland every single year and the I mean you have to hold your hands up and say that's an that's a level of involvement in the Irish economy quite apart from the and the Irish sporting landscape that you don't really ask of too many people I mean if if Rory said I'll come and play the Irish Open but I mean you know I'm not going to go sponsoring I'm not going to like get involved financially in the tournament I mean, you know, I, I'm not going to try and bring my mates over. That's the most you could ask for, yeah. Like, yeah, like that's what, that's what you would ask. Plus, plus, Rory with a plus one every year would have been maybe yeah. the minimum requirement for him not to get a little bit of stick. Yeah. Uh, for you know, Because if you just stop turning up, it's not I mean, if good. he turns up himself, that's, that's, that, that's all he can ask. Done, you know? yeah, no, but I mean, the fact that he's bringing uh, Ricky Fowler and he's br- like like he did last year to Royal County and he's bringing all these guys over and it's very, it is, it is a case. It's, it, I mean, you can't boil it down to oh, well, you know, there are a lot of other factors. I mean, Rory picks up the phone and says, listen, do me a favour, come to this tournament. And I think that's pretty much how it happens. Uh, so you have to say, this is, uh, it's, a, it's a brilliant achievement by Rory to save the Irish Open, which is what he's done. And the, the actual winning of it, I mean, he's, if he plays 20 of these tournaments, he's probably going to win one of them eventually. But the way that he won it yesterday, um, the style with which he won it, uh, you know, ha- having a three-shot lead, losing the three-shot lead, and then hitting two of the best, you know, second shots to par fives that I've seen in a long time. I mean, that shot in the 18th is, that is, that is how you win a golf tournament. There is no two ways about it. I mean, that's how you stomp your opposition and win it with a bit of style. Win it with a bit of style. Yeah, there had been. Uh, you remember when he was deliberating over who he's going to declare for during the yeah. Olympics? There's a little bit of ah. Oh. Who does this guy think he is? You know, he's, is, is he Irish or not? You know, how should we feel about him? I didn't really buy into that uh, that line too much at, at the time. But uh, hey, he's as Irish as they, as they come now. You yeah, know, winning Irish Opens. Well, the, like th- that's it. I mean, I think we can get hung up on you know someone singing the national anthem or not singing the national anthem. You know, like like that's how you prove Define your national. Yeah, uh, your yeah, yeah, yeah. Like if you call yourself a, a proud Irishman enough. You know, you're a proud Irishman or whatever, you know, however you want to go about it. I mean, there there are loads of ways to pay lip service. And as sports fans, we, we love absolutely <laughs> lap it up. Oh, my God. Then like, we move on to the next outrage. Yeah, the reaction, the reaction is always is always so positive that it's a game that's very easily played. But when someone like Rory McIlroy actually puts his name to, to stuff mm. and puts a bit of effort into it and and does what he's done for the Irish Open and then goes and wins it, you got to hold your hands up. Well done, Rory McIlroy. Today, there have been some positive noises around the Cork hurling camp coming into their championship opener against Tip, but <laughs> nobody's really sure where that confidence came from as they looked a lot like the team that lost all of the regulation league games during their first championship game. We'll have Owen Kelly chatting about that a little bit later on. And a big Saturday sport next weekend. Got a whole lot bigger with Connacht joining Leinster in the Pro 12 final, which slots in right before the Champions League final. A surprisingly positive way to end the season, Simon. Yeah, it has been, hasn't it? Given the way things were looking a few months ago, I was actually thinking watching the games over the weekend that it's the most positive Irish rugby weekend since before the World Cup. Um, not all Irish players involved playing, but just uh, the crowds, the atmosphere, a number of prominent players playing really well. Leo Cullen maybe getting on top of things with Leinster. You know, they're hitting uh, form at the right time of the season. Yeah, it was just, you kind of left the weekend thinking... Irish rugby isn't as screwed as we maybe thought it was. Shane Horgan and Jerry Thornley are ready to go. Jerry, good fun at the sports grounds on Saturday. 
Yeah, it was a great day. It was a great day. All the forecast of um, scattered thunderstorms and heavy rain showers never materialised. They all passed before the game and you were hearing reports of um, the Irish Open grinding to a halt for an hour and elsewhere around the country and it was just glorious sunshine. It was breezy, um, a hell of a breeze blowing in from the Bohemore end, um, but the crowd were in situ, I'd say a good hour before kick-off. There was bands playing, sun shining. It was very carnival-like. It was a hell of an atmosphere um, and there was a fair smashing of a few hundred Glasgow fans there as well. And uh, this was a proper capacity house, yeah. There wasn't one season ticket holder not availing the opportunity <laughs> to be there. They could have sold it out twice over, I'd say. Yeah, it seemed obviously they got what they wanted as well. I mean, the scenes afterwards looked looked incredible. A serious sort of, it's an emotional day, I guess. Yeah, very emotional day. When when um, John Muldoon led the team out, I swear I've never heard a roar like it uh, from the clan terrace and all four sides of the ground. That was just for the start. And then um, they played such fantastic, ambitious rugby as usual, true to type. Um, they weren't going to go down without firing bullets and uh, they kept the ball in hand they, they stayed true to their passing game probe for openings made 12 line breaks to two like they were much the better team in the day had two cracking tries disallowed by the TMO for the slightest of marginal offence in the build up to them and you felt then when Rodney Ayew committed his um, left arm stiff arm tackle on Stuart Hogg and got himself binned for the last seven minutes that somehow there was going to be a cruel twist in it and that was when their 16th man became the 15th man and, and helped them fill, plug the gaps and work hard for each other and keep making their tackles. And Glasgow couldn't get over the halfway line, much less into the 22. So it was, um, it was quite an emotional end. And then the countdown, 10, all the way down to one and the full-time whistle and AJ McGinty kicking the ball dead and cue the pitch invasion. It was, um, it was a long night then in Galway as well. Not the best preparation for last night's 10K run. Sherry, <laughs> they've gone most of the season beating teams by playing this new mm-hmm. brand of rugby and, yeah. and just being a little more skillful and more adventurous than their opponents. But then in the last two games, I feel like there's been a shift and they've, there's been a fusion of the old and the new in that they're using that old passion, which didn't win them many games, but sometimes got them a good home result. And they've fallen back on that as well as uh, maintaining what they've done this season. Yeah, uh, in that sense, they've become the new monster and uh, the sports ground has become the new Thoman Park. And um, there were moments when McGinty had even had to kick the ball for, for, for territory or Kieran Marmion put out a box kick occasionally. But mo- for the most part, until that end game, they played, they played true to type. Funny, I was working on the match last night and I put on the Super Rugby try time and it began with the try in the Crusaders match and it was, I think it was Dan Coles making a break and linking with another forward and then Israel Dag popping up and scoring and it was like, uh, that could be Connacht. It's a very New Zealand brand of rugby with forwards and backs seamlessly. You look at their stats at the end of the game, Simon, and apart from John Muldoon who carried for 40 plus metres, most of the forwards did not carry for that much ball but all their backs made line breaks, every single one of them. Some of them made two line breaks each. All the outside three made clean line breaks. Like you've got O'Halloran showing and going and goose-stepping and making breaks and putting your own McKeown over what would have been a sensational try. Bundy Aki and Robbie Hanshaw taking the hard yards up the middle but getting them over the gain line. Aki, Aki adding some lovely subtle touches, winning turnovers. And then Marmion sniping and his running game. And McGinty's footwork and stepping in the face of the blitz defence was as had happened two weeks previously. So all their backs provided different running threats. And the playmakers on the inside were nearly always forwards. Ali Muldowney doing his usual thing as first receiver and quick hands, no-look passes. thought Tom McCarthy had a fabulous game. I mean, he's such a tough, nuggety hooker. His darts were sensational in, those bre- in that wind. He's and he the best um, Irish-based hooker since Jerry Flannery at that. Yeah. And it makes such a difference to a team to yeah. know that's a rock-solid part of your game. You can work off it. And I think in the build-up to the first try, they um, Glasgow lost their third line-out of the first half. And a Pergos tapped a penalty, which he mightn't have done had their line-out been going well. But he tapped a penalty deep in his own half as a result. 
and yeah it was a huge part of the great platform for much of what they did and uh, and then and what else he brings to the game all around the pitch I think he could well be the Irish hooker the next World Cup Shane did you have any sense any inkling ever that there was a the number of people in Connacht that would be disinterested in rugby and b the passion I mean there's one thing getting filling a stadium but then having people sing unified at the end of a game is another well, it's amazing how many passionate forwards or uh, passionate supporters you can locate when you go on a big winning run and you top <laughs> the league and you're in a final. So I think that naturally happens. But I do think this team also captures the imagination more so than um, a team that's ground its way to the top over years and, and not playing the type of rugby that they are. I think in in respect to the sort of performance level that Connacht produced the weekend, I thought it was it was really you know very high quality. Glasgow did look poor, um, but they made them look poor. And um, I think the fact that Connacht can blend or marry this emotional level of performance with the skillful makes them you know the type of team that people want to watch and the people that want to support and. Uh, the fact that um, Connacht have, have found their voices um, as supporters, I think, it, you know, it's hopefully it will continue and it should continue because this team deserves to be supported because they're doing something quite unique at the moment. And how they reacted to that uh, blitz defence of, of Glasgow, which for me, I think it was a little bit naive. I think Townsend is one of the best coaches in, in rugby at the moment, but he really was backing against... Connacht um, having the skill level to continue on their game or having the bottle to continue on the game that we've seen all season and every time they've been doubted they've uh, shown that they will they will continue on um, playing that sort of game and trusting their skill level. It's, it doesn't always work out but they continue on trying and that had a big effect against um, that line speed. It came up really quick but the uh, Connacht backs in particular were very um, good on their feet and, and you saw defenders flying by many times and that in turn left big gaps Would you like to see Connacht win the final Shane? Would I like to see yeah. Connacht win the final? Um, I would like to see a brilliant <laughs> final with uh, two teams really hammering out but uh, now on, well, my loyalties will always remain with, with, uh, with Leinster Of course yeah but I mean come on like Leinster could, could take or leave a, a, a Pro 12 title here or there I mean this, is, this could be Connacht's only shot well, uh, listen, let's hope it's not Connacht's only shot because uh, they're developing something there over, um, you know, that's actually been developed a couple of years under Pat Lamb and they're, and they're playing uh, a type of rugby that gives them a chance. And we're seeing it actually in the UK as well with Exeter uh, competing in a final as well. So I think there's a real, it's a very, it's a, it's a real indication to rugby coaches in the Northern Hemisphere and particularly in Ireland to say that there is a real value in trying to play the sort of rugby that uh, Connacht do and I think even you know Leinster's performance the weekend as good as it was um, in and I think it was probably as good as they've had this season I, I think they can you know go to another level because I do think Leinster have better players than Connacht but I think Connacht are actually playing a better style at the moment Yeah and it's funny um, Jerry. Connacht do have the challenge now of uh and with a day less preparation to just take themselves back down off that emotional level that they're at uh, and gear themselves up and go and go again against mm-hmm. Leinster but you would think that as Shane said there I mean they get to the semi they get to the games they need to get to uh, to actually qualify for the semi finals they still play that style of rugby they play the semi final they stick with it you know it's, they're not going to abandon it maybe nerves will get a get a little hold in them next week and they might not execute quite as well but i think we're pretty sure they're going to give it a go Completely. They're going to die with their boots on. <clears throat> They're going to be true to, to the way they want to play the game. 
I think they'd have huge regrets if they didn't do that. It's the way they're programmed now. They've become a machine. Um, Pat Lamb goes on and on about processes, 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 but that's what they'll do. Um, today's Monday. They'll have gone in this morning. They'll have reviewed that match the weekend. They'll put it to bed and they'll start preparing as they do for any other game. And they do have this capacity to treat the sense of occasion and the prize at stake as a bu- an exterior bubble, as it were, a prize that they don't really think too much about during the week, and they just focus on. They will just focus on Leinster. They focus on their given opponents any given week. They do their double session on a Tuesday. It's very loud. It's very active. It's very full on. They'll have their day off on Wednesday. They'll travel over on Thursday. That'll be one slight difference. So it will be a little bit different for them. They'll go over on Thursday and then have their captains run on Friday. But I think, you know, they showed it. They came back from a week after that crushing defeat away to Grenoble in the quarterfinals of the Challenge Cup, which in hindsight might actually now have been a blessing. And a week later, were able to respond by going into their the double whammy from Munster and just go into their normal routine of the way they play the game and work their way back in by just retaining the ball and finding chinks in, in Munster's defence and, and pull clear either side of half time to win in the end fairly comfortably and I think they've just you know, whether it's Leinster at home Munster at home Glasgow at home back to back whatever the occasion they've just they've risen to it because they just they've become a machine and I don't think that's going to change greatly this week no I've long since learned to believe in them I think the Irish public are really tapping into what Connacht are doing and Big part time, of it Simon. Yeah. part of it is the number of background stories that are involved yes, because yes. we didn't know a lot of these players very well yeah. before this. I'm having great fun inter- nearly doing a Connacht interview every week. You're right. It's yeah. great. They're all stories. Adia Loken, yep. you can maybe tell us about John Muldoon, this 13-year yep. career that may have this reward yep. ne- approaching the end of it. Yep. If you want to explain a few, Pat Lamb, obviously rejected by Auckland. Yeah. We know that already. Rejects everywhere. Pat Lamb rejected by Auckland. Um, Ni Adia Loken rejected by Leinster under-19 development squad. Um... Uh, Matt Healy rejected by Leinster under 20s just before they started uh, just after a, a, an under 20 World Cup rebuilt their games in, in clubs with tr- Trinity and Lansdowne and ended up taking get a chance with Connacht who took a punt on both of them and you look at players like that and say Ulton Delan and Ni Adiolunkun in the last six months have just come on to a different level of form it's amazing what confidence can do for a player Adiolunkun always had pace I interviewed him at length last week lovely, charming um, Nigerian dub uh, playing in Connacht found his home would happily spend the rest of his professional career there moved when he was um, 10 years of age with his mum and brother to Dublin she became a nurse in St James Hospital he like I said he went to De La Salle Churchtown not a noted rugby playing school got a few trial matches trained with the Leinster under 19 development squad for a summer got let go just before the Interpro started his passion would have been Gaelic. He played with Temple Oak Sing Street up until then. He also played a lot of football, as you'd expect from a Nigerian kid, with Verona, end up with Shelburne under-20s. And then on foot of being let go by the Leinster under-19s, went, oh, I really want to be a rugby player. Just It was out of rejection, he decided, I mean, he's going to make this work. He owes an awful lot to Lorcan Balfe and De La Salle Church and put him in touch with Tony Smith in Trinity. And this is the amazing part of the story. He's always lacked um, belief in his own pace. Tony Smith spent four years trying to persuade him to take on ups- opposing winners on the outside to really back his pace. And now at um, Connacht, um, he got, got one trial match uh, against a Russian side with the Connacht Eagles um, in April two seasons ago. Pat Lamb immediately came onto the pitch, invited him into his office and offered him um, an extended trial the following season. He couldn't believe it. He thought he was out of his depth. And he's gone from 79 kg to 90 kg. He's improved his work under the high ball immeasurably. Pat Lamb tells me he's one of the most efficient, effective players at the breakdown that they have. And you look, I look, looked at him closely again on Saturday. His ball presentation and the tackle is superb. He's added a kicking game. And now he's suddenly back in his pace and he's scoring tries as well. He's become a real weapon almost as much as Healy. The two of them in tandem, like in, in the Grenoble away match, were just, I haven't seen 
two outside Irish backs linked like this in a long time and he's uh, he's just improved immeasurably and look at Alton Delan the way he's putting himself around the last six months no doubt getting capped by Ireland was a part of this story a bit like Adi Alonkun you know came from Paris with his mum who also wanted to be a nurse moved over here with his brother um, moved to Chile um, got didn't get an offer of a full um, contract with uh, Munster with the academy. Got a full um, academy offer from Connacht, relocated to Corinthians. And this season has also made his breakthrough and again has bulked up physically and learned skills and so forth. It just shows you how many gems there are around Irish rugby. And nobody has been better at locating them than Nigel Carroll and Jimmy Duffy and Pat Lamb and, and Connacht. Fair play to them. Yeah, uh, lots of great stories. There are plenty of gems in the Leinster squad as well, though, um, Shane. And they pulled the performance out of the bag against Ulster. I don't know if it was in part a reaction to how bad they'd been up at uh, Kingsman Park a couple of weeks ago. Where do you think it came from? Well, I think they're going to, first of all, I think they're going to need all the support they get because I get the feeling that uh, if you're not directly from Leinster or have some attachment to this uh, Leinster side, I think there's a good chance you're going to be supporting Connacht <laughs> in this final. And it's because of those stories that are quite remarkable and, uh, and interesting and new and fresh. And there is a really, there's a tale there. Um, but um, at the same time, they have to beat a, a Leinster side with a lot of a lot of good players and ones that haven't performed particularly well this season. It's been a pretty fallow season, uh, performance-wise. I know I spoke about it at the uh, uh, the start of the the match at the weekend, and I couldn't believe actually that Leinster somehow manages to top that table, having never really hit their straps. But they certainly did at the weekend, and and. Um, the the key factor in that I think was the performance of of their front line top players. Uh, Jamie Hislam has played played his best game for Leinster at the weekend uh, this year. Uh, Owen Redden had a huge influence mm-hmm. in the game, um, and Ben Teo did quite well. But Ringrose looked really impressive a lot. Every time he got a touch, he did. He uh, seemed to bring some excitement or make space for someone or make space for himself. And um, I think Luke Fitzgerald coming back dominated Andrew Trimble, and you don't get to say that very often against Trimble, especially in the air. So, and then the the, the maestro in the middle was Johnny Sexton. He was pulling it all together. Um, again, had one of his better games of the season for Leinster. Kept Leinster on the front foot with a really varied kicking game, but uh, also was a constant threat. And um, I think. Having had that performance, they will go in to the game against Connacht with a with a great deal of confidence because you know that can be a base level for them. And what was looking like a very scrappy season or and just disappointing with regard to performance level, uh, they put a big game together in a final, which they've done many times before. All of a sudden, it um, it paints the season in a very different uh, shade. Yeah, is that a case of papering over the cracks, though, um, or you know, is it is it you know, I suppose Leo Cullen can sit there and say, "I'm you know, I've got a trophy at the end of my first season." Would that be enough? Do you think to uh, allow Leinster fans not to worry too much about some of the lower points of the season? I mean, the way Johnny Sexton was talking after the game up in in Belfast, uh, it sounded like there were plenty of issues. Yeah, there were, and we'll see if the performance of the weekend was um, an aberration or if it was pr- uh, um, progress towards something else. I don't think Leo Cullen or Gervin Dempsey or anyone in the staff in Leinster will be thinking everything's been fixed by a good performance against Ulster because a couple of weeks ago there was a performance against Ulster that was 
as bad as we've seen for Leinster teams. So um, the fact that we know that the performance level can go a lot higher, there's positives in that, and you, you, that's one way of looking at it. The other way is looking at why um, isn't, aren't these performance levels being hit week in, week out? Um, is it an issue with motivation? Is it an issue with um, a hangover from a World Cup? Have they got to a point where they can kick on in this final and bring that into next season? I think they're only time can tell, but if there is a, if there's not a, a high level of performance, if there's not a very canny performance for, from Leinster this um, weekend, they'll lose against Connacht because Connacht won't be afraid to win this game. That's for certain, um, and it won't be a question of just hanging in there and um, you know, getting over the line. They'll have to. Um, implement their game plan and at the same time prevents Connacht. Now, that's not impossible. I think there's, I think we saw that the blitz defence isn't the way to go against Connacht, but neither is a completely passive line as well because uh, they'll take the space on the outside if you give them a very soft corner. So I think we'll see a defensive um, system that, that varies it up when they have opportunity to take big line speed and um, stop uh, Bundiaki from getting a... Um, if you know from getting uh, cheap yards, they'll do that. But I think if the ball moves outside uh, Bundiaki, you'll see certainly a, a softer defence. And uh, and I think also Connacht are susceptible to turnovers. We saw it a couple of times against Glasgow. Um, uh, that because so, uh, there's so many different options and so many running lines and guys are trying to get offloads and um, trail runners are, are trying to get those offloads that uh, they can sometimes be a little bit light the breakdown so I think we'll see Leinster really going after that um, but they'll also recognise that it's not just at the breakdown they'll need to get their set piece right because that uh, had a huge effect on Glasgow at the weekend Jerry touched on it earlier um, those uh, the, the the level of, of uh, inaccuracy at the line out was a huge problem for them yeah it's a funny thing you know um, you learn more from your defeats than your wins there's no doubt about it Glasgow went into the last two games against Connacht on the back of a nine match winning run four bonus points in a row sometimes you can be, you can believe too much in yourself and you can be a little bit overconfident or whatever certainly I think that uh, Connacht will trace their defeat to Teresa as a very valuable lesson and a turning point and I think Lens did the same up in um, the Kingspan Stadium it was interesting going on to the press conference last Thursday and uh, Leo, as usual, playing dead bats to most questions. And I asked Ethan to say, well, would Joe Barakat's comment about during the second half about, you remember you read it out here? Yeah, yeah. About how Lent, predictable Leinster yeah. had been. And yeah. I said, will that be an extra source of motivation? And um, it was a little bit of an instance of, you know, don't shoot the messenger, Ethan. He looked me in the eye and he, he just said, yes. Really? And a pause. And then he added, you know, look, we were well beaten and stuff about learning and whatever else. But quite clearly, that was an extra spur for them. Johnny Sexton's comments, the way they played, the pride in their own performance, the fact that it was Ulster gave them a chance of revenge straight away and they had home advantage and a, a cracking atmosphere and Ulster fans travelling down in their numbers made the occasion as well as anything mm-hmm. else. And there was no doubt that uh, I think, you know, Leo played it down after the game. No, it was just about a semi-final. They knew they had to turn up for semi-final. I think that's nonsense. I think there was an element of wounded pride of wanting to prove Joe Barakat wrong. And I think Les Kiss was acutely conscious of it because he made reference to it on the Monday before the, the meeting last week as well. I thought there was a lot of going back to basics about it. Um, it was mostly about the intensity of their breakdown work, uh, the, the twin pillars coming in and clearing out really ruthlessly efficiently. I agree with Shane. I thought Owen Redden had a magnificent game, really one, as good as he's played this season, and he ensured the high tempo. And all the big players turned up, and you could add Jack McGrath and Jordy Murphy who had a big game, and Reese Ruddock to that as well. So they turned a corner with that, there's no doubt. I don't know that a lot of it, what, what they did achieve, like Ben T was offload, Gary Ringrose switched a direction that led to the Jamie Heaslip try and the turning point of the game was down to the 
the quality of their players and they don't, there's no doubt they have better quality players than Connacht and they, they're going to be bulk suppliers on the South African tour when the squad is announced on Wednesday but that being said I think in a weird way it's the league has got the final it deserves it might not have got the best venue it deserves no you're writing about this actually yeah, on the, the front page of this what, a, what an occasion this could have been for Irish rugby and the Pro 12 if the final had been in the Aviva I still would have thought that when there are three or four home unions involved they could all make their grounds available at a week's notice and this would have been a way better occasion I understand that they had to make their decision early for probably under pressure from TV and sponsors and they're an important part of all of this as well but they deliberately they chose knowing that the Edinburgh Marathon was on the same weekend and that the Champions League final was on the same weekend which means there isn't a plane to be chartered throughout Europe as well because any self-respecting Madridista is going down to San Siro to yeah, watch and that the, and the flights hotels etc are already all, expensive in Edinburgh yeah. even if there was no match yeah, on because there's yeah. a lot of people going over to, for but the marathon yeah. in the same way that Ulster invaded Dublin in 1999 and Lansdowne Road for their win over Colombia in the same way that the Red Army was invented in Twickenham in 2006 in the same way the Blue Army came into being in 2009 in Edinburgh this could be Connacht's week they'll find ways plane, trains, automobiles there's, there's boat ferries going from um, Belfast over I think they'll get there somehow and it could be that we'll see a huge green invasion on behalf of Connacht and it'll be their week and there's something about this that is a good fit for Connacht if it, they, they can't beat Ulster they've never have been able to they're their bogey side they've never once beaten them under Pat Lamb they've an abysmal record against them whereas they've quite regularly even back in the old days um, when they were underdogs in the sports ground into pros they could occasionally upset Leinster partly because they had maybe so many ex-Leinster players as they have again players with points to prove and I just think there's something about Leinster being a better fit for Connacht that there's no better team for them to win their first ever trophy against than Leinster given the baggage of their 131 years history given the way they've often been treated by the RFU over the years it was an, an ex-Leinster coach Matt Williams said once that there's institutionalised racism within the RFU against Connacht now that ain't the case in the last four years we have to we have to give them credit the RFU they're the ones that have increased Connacht's budget from around 4 million to 6 million that's been a big big factor in this resurgence in Connacht rugby but I just feel that playing Leinster maybe even playing them in Murrayfield away from the Aviva away from Dublin where they haven't won since I don't know when 1960 or something could actually suit them better just on a one off occasion it just might be a better fit them than it would be if they'd been playing Ulster Shane last thought on that um I think I'm not sure if Leinster are, are the perfect fit for Connacht, but I do a think better that, fit. Sorry, I meant Shane rather than Ulster, yeah, maybe. Um, yeah, I'm not. I'm not certain actually because I, I do think um, that uh, when when you know when it comes to the final, I think there will be an element of these guys have done it before, and there's a lot of silverware in that Leinster cabinet. I think if you're playing against someone. For example, like Ulster, I think there's there's nerves on both sides. There'll be certainly the Leinster players. I think will be more more comfortable in the environment. That uh, depends depends how that then is reflected in their play. They should be able to play their game um, without uh, much inhibition. I don't actually expect Connacht to play the game uh, to play with a whole lot of inhibition either because um, they've become so well versed at it. The fact that it's a final, I don't think will make. Uh, that much difference to the game that they're going to produce. So I'm kind of confident that Connacht are going to produce uh, the, the sort of performance that we've seen most of the season, uh, which is you know which is at a high level, um, a wide uh, wide play, lots of offloads, trying to get lots of offloads, lots of runners, uh, lots of angles, but at the same time with the occasion to maybe not always vary it as well as they should. And um, I noticed when Leinster played them last in the sports ground, there was a quite a number of balls down, especially around the 22, that sort of area, as they were trying to play their way out. Um, and then a couple of times they should have kicked the ball to touch or kicked the ball down.
down the field and they didn't. Um, and Lancer didn't capitalise on that. And I think there's been a, a lots of occasions this year where teams haven't uh, capitalised on those odd mistakes from Connacht. And uh, they're the kind of things that if it happens in a final, the increased pressure, the sort of intensity that comes with a final, those mistakes in those um, you know, so that sort of red zone area can be really punished. And uh, that would be my con- be my concern for Connacht because I think uh, if Leinster are given those opportunities in a final, they're more likely to take them. All right, that's looking forward to it, Jerry mm. Shane. Thanks a million. Cheers. Thanks a million. Every so often, I'm on the bus and I suddenly turn around to bite someone. John Hayes, I'm talking about. Yeah. John Hayes. Now, I always thought that was ridiculous. He had won the victory over himself. He loved Brendan Rogers. That's where it goes from. Thanks a lot, Pepe. Fair to say, anybody could have managed those guys? No, of course not. Let me show you right now for you give it up. What do you think, Sai, about the final itself, Shane? Reckons yeah. There are weaknesses there to exploit from Lancer's point of view. Connacht weaknesses that haven't maybe been, certainly weren't in the semi-final exploited particularly well. Yeah, I thought Connacht were a lot better than Glasgow in the semi-final. It was only close because of the disallowed try. But I, I think, I know this Leicester trope is getting a little old now, but there's definitely a similarity in that it takes a long time, I think, for people's brains to alter and, and adapt to the fact that this team are actually quite good and just because these players were rejected by other clubs or just because we didn't know them before the start of this season or just because the coach uh, failed at another club previous to this it takes an awful long time to shed all that and finally go no wait they are as good as the bigger teams that they're playing you just have to go on form and the way they're playing you have to take the evidence in front of your eyes as opposed to uh, the historical baggage um, uh, and for that reason I think it's kind of a 50-50 game I still think Leinster do have better players Yeah. Um, and actually watching the Leinster-Ulster game it kind of hits you how much they've been underperforming this season and they finally kind of hit par and then buried Ulster in the process but it's kind of uh, uh, Connacht are still the better coach team Leinster the better players I still go with Connacht you have to just about I yeah, like the way you're, yeah. you're, you're doubting yourself now stick with it you've gone with the Leicester um, yeah well John Muldoon was saying it's a 50 to 1 game in favour of Leinster oh, well, <laughs> John if you're going to ta- if you're going to do the talking down thing just don't go too ridiculously far <laughs> I'm sure he might have been a little tongue in cheek there the Irish Time uh, Manchester United dominated Irish Time second Cups football podcast is ready for you that's yeah <laughs> they have asked for that really Oh, you can laugh. I have to walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. But you don't know what you're talking about. What yeah. did you know? I managed to stay alive for six days. I'd say it to your face, not say it to you now. I'm down to Anfield and we'll see them up. What you doing down here, you shawny man? <laughs> You know, Alan, there was so much stuff to talk about that we didn't even talk about Alan Parge's dance. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I can think that so there have been weeks when that would have dominated the, the whole week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. yeah, it's true. We didn't even we didn't even go there. Can I ask you a question about the the pirates dance? Oh, yeah. How premeditated do you think it was? I think. I mean, are you talking about from the second the, f- the final whistle in the semi final <laughs> went? I think it was. I think there was an element of premeditation in it. Uh, he said he was just enjoying the moment. As a manager, it's difficult to get to enjoy these moments. Maybe he thought, well, what will happen if? Maybe he'd visualized. Mm. You know, what would happen if that happened? Particularly if his substitute scores. It's one of those manager moments, like really an assist from Pardew. Almost yeah. a goal. Mm. It was almost Crystal Palace won, Manchester United nil. 
uh, goal, 77 minutes, A, Pardew. Mm. Yeah, Punchin was merely the instrument Brackets with which punching. Pardew scored the goal. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Pardew was the agent. So, uh, and unfortunately, it didn't work out for him. Uh, a couple of minutes later, they let in an equalizer and they lost again. Like, uh, Pardew loses in the FA Cup final after extra time. We also didn't talk about the Republic of Ireland squad because as we recorded, they were just doing a press conference there. There's been... Uh, Change. This is we're changing up here. We're talking about what we didn't talk about in the football podcast. Mm. Developments, developments. Um, so Martin O'Neill, twenty-four players uh, to train today at Abbottstown. So four players have been cut from the thirty-five. When I say cut, I mean reduced to standby. So they are Johnny Hayes, Alex Pierce, Paul McShane, and Anthony Pilkington. So as it stands, those guys are not going to Euro twenty sixteen. No massive surprises. Albeit McShane is always a guy who's in and around it. He he, he had a disaster in that friendly game. Against Slovakia. Against Slovakia, which Wasn't might good. seal his fate there. Yeah, and, and, and in fairness, you know, I don't think anyone would be too surprised uh, to see McShane dropping out. This is a 35-man squad. Like, you're going to... Get, you yeah, get, get rid yeah, of some of them. The guys are going to finish... The guys finishing the bottom third of this are not going to the Euros, so McShane has finished in that bottom third. Although, could vault back in if somebody gets injured. And people do get injured. Mark Wilson has been injured and is out of the Euros. Uh, now he has been you know he's been struggling with injury for a while but basically O'Neill said today he has to he needs to take four or five weeks completely off so the best thing for him to do is not is not go to this tournament um, and get himself fit so that was going to happen that's what's going to happen David Ford David Myler Kieran Westwood are not there because their clubs are in the playoffs Aidan McGeady's club uh, Sheffield Wednesday are also in the playoffs they're in the final against Hull uh, which is going to be on Saturday but McGeady is training with Ireland can get into that Sheffield Wednesday squad they may even have um, sent him back to Everton without me noticing but things don't seem to be going too well I mean basically he's, he's gone to Sheffield Wednesday with the aim presumably of, of kind of sparking himself back into some kind of form after completely falling out of the picture at Everton that hasn't happened at all oh yeah in normal circumstances he's probably not how would this player get into a squad for Euros hmm. but they're not that normal circumstances in that O'Neill is the man who's you know, been involved in his career quite a bit and he also did deliver those goals against Georgia which admittedly were a long time ago now yeah. so you know maybe there's a there's a reason to keep him yeah I mean and he's one he's one of the, the more experienced players uh, he's he's one of the only players with pace I mean we're used to thinking of him as having a little bit of pace at least a bit of foot speed although it's been a while really mm. Um, since we've seen him do anything good. I'm sure we'll get into the squad analysis on Thursday. Squad gets announced on Saturday. So we'll go, we'll go in-depth once the Manchester United news has worn off a little bit. Yeah, there is a lot of um, Manchester United, Jose Mourinho, Louis van Gaal talk in the uh, football podcast. Usually a nine-point hammering of Cork could be seen as a pretty dangerous statement of intent by Tipperary in a Munster Championship opener, but it's kind of hard to know exactly what to think after if you consider how weak the opposition were Owen Kelly I don't want to put words in your mouth but were, are you a little bit surprised at how easy it was for Tip against Cork yesterday? No I was surprised it was that easy um, you know I think Tipperary were really up for it there was nervousness in the stadium before the game you felt that even with the supporters so that probably filtered back into the dressing room these things usually do and uh, you know Tip were, uh, were well prepared for their top men turned up yesterday unlike uh, Cork's you know but I think we you no, know, the team of the weekend in both games in the Leicester Championship and the Munster Championship was, was the sweeper and definitely in those conditions it just doesn't work. It was one stage in the first half I was looking at four Cork forwards including Darren Gleeson against tip, uh, seven Tipperary backs because 
your keeper now can, uh, you know, he's able to play these days as well. He comes off his line and he's used as a, a link man with the defender. So, so that's never going to work in the wet conditions because if a defender runs with a forward and gives us a slice of the nudge, he allows the ball to to to. to flow through and then it's just hovered up by two or three temporary defenders and we've seen that yesterday and Cork then tried to push up with one extra forward so it was still seven temporary defenders uh, including Darren Gleeson against five Cork forwards so it was never going to work for them and Cork was just very very disappointing both games were, were pathetic I think to, to look at them for a finish the, the way they just uh, fizzled out and it, it was it was a disappointing start to what we hoped would be a, would be a great weekend of hurling but look the weather conditions um, we're poor as well so we'll have to factor that in but definitely it was disappointing and yeah. I, I don't think a win like that against how poor Cork where yesterday will do tip any good going in against Limerick but look they played for Hurl for 10 or 12 minutes in the first half exceptional Hurl and uh, their leader stood up and that was the day like that they needed at half time 14 points to 5 game over Yeah you're certainly not dressing it up anyway Owen uh, in terms of what they were up against there I'm interested that you just to take it back to what you said at the very start there you sensed there was a nervousness among the core crowd and that that would seep into the dressing room I would have thought at this level you should be bulletproof from what's going on out there Yeah no the Tipperary uh, crowd was nervous like you mean they were the very crowd, quiet so yeah, yeah. that's what I was saying so like I suppose it really got them focused for it I'm sure look managers and no, you, you do hear what's going on you know, you're you're meeting people. These guys aren't locked away. They have daily jobs, and that, as we know, they're, they're students. So they're meeting people. They know what's going on social media and that. But um, you know, I think when Tipperary are kind of like that and are quite, uh, they tend to come out and perform. And I think their first half performance was very good because Cork came physical for the start of the game, but Tip manned up to it. And between the 14, 15, and 16 minutes, you've seen Tip at their best. Like uh, there was a first touch of Seamus Callan and John McGrath was coming off the shoulder over the bar. And, Bubbles was tremendous in the first half. Seamus Callan, Noel McGrath all picked off points. You know, when Cork were looked like they were trying to apply a bit of physicality, but you know, Tip were awesome. But I think it's how poor Cork were is is what mm. added to the game being being a non spectacle really, like, you know, um but as I said to you, when you have four forwards against uh, six or seven backs, it's making it's make, making life very hard. And Pat Horgan, you see him taking off after fifty four or five minutes. Conor Lehan got his first touch of the ball after twenty two minutes, got a score. And Seamus Harney, who I'd rate as serious players, those three guys, they um, they didn't burn a ball yesterday for for Cork. So you know, a lot of soul searching to be done there, and uh, it's, it's going to be hard for him to pick it up in the qualifiers. Uh, yeah, I mean, you mentioned Patrick Horgan there, and uh, I've seen him getting a bit of criticism over the last kind of 24 hours or so for going for a goal when Cork were seven points down. Cork had gotten on the first roll that they had gotten on in the entire game, really. And, you know, John Gardner was writing that it was uh, on the 42.e that it was a sign of panic that Horgan was going for a goal from a 21-yard free. I mean, obviously, you've been in that situation many times. I mean, as far as I could see... Horgan knew that the Cork were going to have to get a goal. They hadn't come even, you know, anywhere close to getting a goal chance before that. And he's perfectly within his rights to go for a goal because he knew that that's exactly what Cork needed if they were going to pull themselves back into this game. Yeah, they needed it, but it was the wrong decision. Um, you thought penalty, it was the wrong decision, yeah? I would at the time because, um, and having trialled on the new penalty, uh, Liam Sheedy was the... The head of the, um, the, the new penalty being organised, he was involved in that and having trialled on it. It was very hard when you strike behind that 21-yard line to beat three in the goal. It was impossible. So that's why it was changed to the penalty, the rule I'm on about here, to the keeper versus the forward. Mm. So you look at it, there was five, if not six, temporary defenders 
on the goal line and the rule still states that you can't bring the ball in past the 21 yard line when you strike it so it's virtually impossible it's impossible to score on three you put another three in the goal or two you have five or six in it it's impossible and they were I agree with you they were on having their best period of momentum in the game so it would have put them six points behind they were still chasing the game they had, they had the aid of a nice breeze being up in the press box there you could see the flags they had the aid of a nice breeze you know so it might have it just you know because every score at that stage they had got four in a row every score at that stage was kind of um, you know, it was being cheered on gently but it just would have got them as close as they were all day at the crunch stage of the game so I think that actually that ball came up the field and I actually think Tipperary ended up getting a free and putting the ball over the bar so instead of having a six point maybe game it went back to your eight point uh, deficit like so it do, do you don't have to take those yeah, do you don't have to take those sort of ballsy decisions every now and again in a, in a game though Owen I'm sure you've had to do it yourself many times yeah, I would have had, and I probably would have looked after the game and said, wrong decision there. I know your blood right. is boiling and you're pumped up at that. And right, they did need a goal, but, you know, the law of averages, you know, it, it was hard to beat three. With the new rule behind the 21-yard line, it was, it was hard to beat three. It's impossible to beat five or six, do you know? So, um, you know, like, the way the rules have changed, it makes those 21-yard threes near impossible to score now, and I don't think you'll see too many of them scored in, uh, in, in the championship. You said Cork might struggle to, uh, to to get up for the qualifiers and to perform there. I mean, even looking sort of at a more broad level, we were chatting a little bit about this on the podcast on Thursday, about where exactly Munster, uh, Cork sit now in Munster Hurling and in, in Hurling nationally. Oh, no, it's a bit, it seems a pretty grim scene, I and mean, we know there's plenty of criticism of the structural uh, sort of structure of the sport in the county over the last number of years. Would you be would you be worried for them over the next over the next while they, they could fall away entirely? I'd definitely be worried over the next season. Fall away entirely, I doubt. Um, we, it's well documented last year that they won 14, 15, 16, 17, all coming up, coming up along. Probably the best players that they need to bring into their squad now are actually two or three of them, I think, are doing their leaving cert this year. One of them is actually Shane Kingston, it's Kieran's own son. So I suppose if they're still in the championship in July, I'd say you'll see one or two new players getting game time. Steve McDonald is the only other guy to come back. He's probably a top-class defender. He would have, you know, you know yes, they were on the farm, they were in bubbles, and James Callan, they were hard to be tied up. But, you know, Shane, uh, Steve McDonald is the car captain, a great defender, so he'll be a plus back for him. But uh, other than that, it don't seem, you know, if if you could turn around today and say there's three or four guys to come back into that team, experienced guys, you'd be happy with that. But they're not there. You know what I mean? Kim Kings is trying to build a squad. I think Sean McGrath said it last night. He has a development squad working in the background. So if he's probably being honest deep down, he's probably looking at next season, the season after, to really get a new stamp on this Cork team. You know, but look, Hurling supporters, they want success yesterday. And that's the way it is. But um, it's going to be a tough season and I, I can't see Cork um, getting to the latter stages of the All-Ireland Championship. OK, we'll leave it there. Owen Kelly, great stuff. Thanks, thanks, Mill. Thanks, guys. Take care. And he is my second captain. Second captain. That's uh-huh. the humorous competition. I saw that. Important man for my selection. Rory McIlroy wasn't the only golf story over the last few days. The boys at Muirfield, uh, esteemed golf club there in Scotland, voted last Thursday not to amend the constitution of the club to permit women members. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- permit. I mean, that's even the way it's... So 397 of them did vote for change, but the 219 gentlemen who voted against it meant that the required two-thirds majority was narrowly missed. I know you've been uh, intrigued by this story today. Remember some of the dissenters 
no doubt convinced by the letter circulated among members and obtained and published by the Scotsman? Well, I mean, they just... What, what I found most interesting about it was the, the, the level of chaos that they felt was going to be caused to their lunch arrangements. I mean, their lunch arrangements were so important to this group of men that they mentioned it twice. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, I would say that if you feel that strongly to include lunch arrangements, I'd say just do it the once, because it is the sort of phrase... Now, I mean, maybe I'm... I'm uh, I'm crediting them with a level of self-awareness which they have not shown. <laughs> you don't think so, Murphy? We are not an ordinary club. Our special nature, a gentleman's club where golf is played, is quite unique with its fraternity built inter alia on foursomes play with a round taking only the same time as lunch and leaving enough time for a further round after lunch, in brackets, even in midwinter. This is one of the miracles in modern day play. It is much admired. Our foursomes and speedy play would be endangered. The letter goes on. So this letter is written by uh, 30-odd of the real hardcore no campaigners mm-hmm. to try to get everyone else on side. And it was successful. It was successful in getting enough people on side anyway. The introduction... Oh, sorry, we are criticised by some for being elitist, but if we are, that is entirely due to a membership selection process which emphasises an overriding requirement that prospective members appreciate and accept our traditions. Yeah. That just about makes sense. Well, uh, you know, it sounds in the... Yes, uh, I mean, grammatical. grammatical. <laughs> Uh, the introduction of lady members is bound to create difficulties, regardless of the conventions. <laughs> lady they, members, yeah. <laughs> regardless of the conventions when they first join, they are likely over time. You know how women get. Yeah. You know they just over time they're going to start complaining. Yeah. According to this, regardless of the conventions when they first join, they are likely over time to question our foursomes play, our match system, the uncompromising challenge our fine links present. Those women golfers just, just hate the hate the tough links courses. Our lun- sorry, lady golfers. Our lunch <laughs> arrangements. There you are, the second time the lunch arrangements have come into play. It will take a very special lady golfer to be able to do all the things that are expected of them in the template which is suggested. And the ladies' membership, as a whole, may not meet this standard. Boom, ladies, see you later. Come back in four years, we'll have another vote. <laughs> a lot of, a, 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 big, a bigger proportion of the uh, slightly over a third of members who voted against them coming in will be dead than of the two yeah, thirds that's, the, that's basically it I mean just over wait. my dead body is is that's literally that's what they're talking about here. Yeah, yeah, I mean, we, we just have to wait for a die off but it shouldn't take too long so that's uh, it's golf in Scotland that's unfair it's not golf everywhere in Scotland but mm. uh Golf in Port Marnock as well. Oh yeah, well, fair point, Murph. I was um, getting on my my high horse about uh, about Scotland Can there. Pop the Scots we, again. Uh, we looked a little bit closer to home. Yeah, actually, McElroy to take it back to where we began or what we talked about earlier on. Rory McElroy, it being a legend all weekend, he said. Uh, I think it was an interview with Sky Sports. He was talking about this issue. He says, "I've always thought that Port Marnock was one of the best venues for the Irish Open because of its proximity to Dublin and its proximity to the airport." But obviously, that issue. Uh, female only um, sorry uh, no women members uh, is holding them back we've had conversations about it they are in the process of taking the first few steps of maybe changing that rule and I'm going to put as much pressure as I can on them to change it I'd love to have the Irish Open there but at the same time it's 2016 and these things have to change eventually so uh, good weekend all round for Rory McIlroy I think Uh, have a listen to our football show uh, which is out now and is uh, leaning heavily on Louis van Gaal Jose Mourinho and all of that. Thanks, Murph. Thank you all. Thank you, Ken. Thanks, Ken. Thank you, Karen. Thank you all. Thanks for listening. What is that? It's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys.